Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your RPG treasure trove. I am your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and joining me this evening is uh, someone whose content I very recently discovered, uh, but he's someone that so many of you out there already know and love. Uh, one of the brightest guys doing some of the best videos on YouTube, ladies and gentlemen, Professor Dungeon Master. Good evening, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a very flattering introduction. No problem at all. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Really looking forward to it. Awesome. So we are going to kick this off the way we kick off all of these episodes. I've got these questions that everyone gets asked when they come on the show. So let's begin at the beginning. Uh, how did you first find yourself getting into RPGs and D&D? <laughs> It was actually 40 years ago this year that a friend of mine received the Dungeons & Dragons box set. It was the Moldvay Magenta box set. He received it for Christmas, and he invited me over the day after Christmas, so it was December 26th, and he invited me over to roll up characters. And we, we had hot chocolate and rolled up characters. And I rolled up a fighter and an elf. And... He was a couple years older than me, mm -hmm. and he didn't want to read the rule book. So he said, you know, I'm never going to read this thing. You read it. You know, he had tried to find us a dungeon master. He couldn't find one. So he says, you read it. You could be the dungeon master. And I read it, and I said, wow, this is amazing. I can't wait to play this. And I went back to him, and I said, you know, we've got to play this game. It's awesome. We've got to get all the kids and play it. But we never got them together because I was – kind of like the little runty kid. They were all older. They were all two or three years older, my friends. And I was kind of that runty tag-along kid. And you can't be the dungeon master if you're 10 for a bunch of 13- and 14-year-olds. Mm -hmm. So I ended up having to round up the younger kids in the neighborhood and run games for them. And I started running the games, and I was the dungeon master. And I've been a player, too, but I've been running games ever since then. So it's 40 years. This is my 40th anniversary of playing Dungeons & Dragons. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, and this can be of all time or currently, whichever one you're feeling most like, but, you know, what what's your favorite game, game system, uh, you know, whichever one it is that, that you want to kind of take a stab at that one with? Dungeons & Dragons, and there's, I make no distinction between 5e, 3e, First E, Dungeon Crawl Classics, Lamentations of the Flame Princess, uh, uh, 
5e hardcore mode. It's all Dungeons and Dragons to me. If it's got armor class, hit points, strength, intelligence, dexterity, it is Dungeons and Dragons, and I think it's the most versatile and best RPG system ever. That's why it hasn't been surpassed. I love other games too, like I love, love Call of Cthulhu and Paranoia, tons of other games, mm. but I always go back to Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, and that lack of distinction, as you mentioned there, uh, is, is something I, I notice a lot in your content. You, you have a very uh, Jeet Kune Do approach to, uh, to Dungeons & Dragons, which I really appreciate because uh, I, I don't go for edition warring myself because uh, I haven't played all the editions, so I don't have an opinion on all of them. But I do like the idea of, you know, take what's useful from each edition, and that's that's something that I really love in, in your content. Thank you. That That is... That's my objective. That's my thing. Gotcha. So, going back to those early days, I know you kind of got uh, pushed behind the screen pretty quickly, uh, but who was your first character or your first memorable character that you uh, brought to the table? My first memorable character, I had a character, uh, Frederick Underfoot. He was a Warhammer fantasy roleplay character. And he was the first character. I was about 17, 18 when I played him until I was through my early 20s. And that was the first character that actually had a personality different than my own. Mm -hmm. And he had a backstory, and the Dungeon Master wove it expertly into the plot. And I really saw him more as just an avatar. It was more than just a, uh, a person... Like me playing the game it was really someone totally different. I really enjoyed playing that character. Gotcha. Now, unlike a lot of guests that I have on the show, you've actually done a video on this next question. Um, but for the people who have not seen this video or don't remember it, who are your forever NPCs that somehow managed to find their way into all of your games? Oof. I don't even remember my own videos. Uh, I, there's definitely Grum the Troll Slayer. Is that one of them? Yes. Okay, yeah. Grum, Grum the Troll Slayer is uh, definitely one of them. The the witch um, from the three NPCs video, I use her an awful lot. I've got Garen the Mage. He's been We've been playing with him for 30 years. Um, and I, I can't... I've got a, 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 a an evil tome that sounds like Jack Nicholson that's an NPC in and of itself because it talks. It's a sentient book with a face that talks. Mm -hmm. So I, I go back to those NPCs. I, f I forget. I forget my own videos. <laughs> Which one am I missing? Uh, those are the ones that I remember. Garen the Mage, uh, yeah. Grum the Troll Slayer, and, and the Witch. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I've been portraying them in various, you know, for 40 years. Well, 40 years, 30 years that campaign's been going. Gotcha. Now, this can be a somewhat difficult question to, to put into words for a lot of people, but if you had to describe your play style as a player as well as as uh, a GM, how would you describe that? Yeah, that is difficult to put into words. I would say as a, a game master, I try to be fast and cinematic. And not fast like I'm rushing the game. I want it to unfold like a natural conversation. I want combat to move along like a movie. Mm -hmm. I 
I think in, in terms of structure of films, like action films generally begin with an action scene of some sort, even if you don't know what the hero is doing exactly. You don't know what kind of caper James Bond is involved in, but he's already in the action. I try to open games that way, and I, I try to think in, in terms of plot points like that working to a climax. So it's, I would say cinematic is my Game Master style. As a player, I'm very collaborative with the Game Master. I've learned to be very gentle with Game Masters. And when I was a teenager, I was that jerky rules lawyer. And since, uh, since being a, a Game Master and for so many years, I, when I play in somebody's game, I am consciously attempting to help the Game Master. <laughs> in whatever they want, like whatever genre you want, give me the character you want me to play if I, you know, uh, and if, if you if give me a choice, I'll, I'll work it out with you so that we could keep your game moving and keep your game great. I try to be as collaborative as possible. Oh, Leo, thank you for the, uh, the follow there, or I don't know if Leo is how you pronounce it. Anyway, thank you for the follow. But, uh, yeah, that's, and that speaks to kind of the, the two distinctions of uh, game masters when they finally get the chance to play. There seems to be kind of two different ways that uh, game masters go about it. One is the way that you just described, where you're, you're very much trying to assist the game master in, you know, carrying forward the vision that they have for their setting, uh, you know, making a character that doesn't stretch the boundaries of the world. And then there's the game master who's like, this is my chance to go crazy and and get revenge on the player who was trying to break my world. Now I'm going to break his. That's not me. <laughs> I, I try to I try to collaborate. I'm definitely the first one. I want to help your game be the best game it can be. Yeah, I, I tend to go more your way, uh, and, and that's because I have a type of character that I really like to play. Uh, the the Geralt of Rivia, Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, those are not the same person, I just realized. Um, Aragorn, those those kinds of personalities. Kind of the, the older, seasoned warrior is where I typically like to go with my characters, and that usually fits with what the Game Master is cooking up. That's a pretty easy character to slot into different worlds. Mm -hmm. So I, I tend to work well with my Game Masters when I get the chance. Yeah, that's an archetype for sure, right? That's in every adventuring party, I think, that, that character. Now, this is another question that can be difficult to pin down especially i mean like you said you've been playing these games for 40 years there's got to be a lot of great memories wrapped up in playing rpgs but if you had to pick a fondest rpg memory what would that be it is impossible but just just recently i played a game with uh i have a youth group i, I run about three or four different groups of Dungeons dragons and, and my youth group which we're on a break right now, but uh, we're going to be getting back. If they're watching, we're going to get back. Give me another week or two. The, but we invented a religion. Uh, the god is Skycos, and 
the clerics of Sky Coast, I, I said to the, the player, Cal, who's playing the cleric, I said, if you're going to be a cleric, we're going to create a religion. And this is what I need. I need to know one day of the week you will not adventure or cast spells because you got to keep one day holy. And the other thing, I, I got to know what every religion has. What will you not eat or drink? You know, something is forbidden. And he says, well, since it's sky coast, I'm going to say the birds. The birds are sacred. They live in the sky. And I said, great. What about chickens? And he said, he said, uh, chickens, no, we won't eat chickens either. Even though they don't fly, they have wings. And so I created a, a splinter group of, of Skycosians that believe it's okay to eat chickens. <laughs> and there are paladins like with chicken armor and chicken shields and <laughs> will defend the chickens and the other ones will fight against them. And they, they ended up with fighting this this mad monk, at least from their point of view. He was insane. And they go into his, they track him down, and he's under his his monastery. He's got a laboratory where he's breeding, he's cross-breeding human-chicken mutants. <laughs> and that was my favorite, that was my favorite, I think, session in a long time. It was a, it was a long time. It was just hilarious. But gotta, I go love take, gotta go take down Monsignor Sanders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so <laughs> it was uh, it was pretty funny. <laughs> that that is pretty great. That because there's that gray area, and you know, if if the key thing is the sky. Uh, do chickens count as birds you shouldn't eat? And that that creating a whole splinter faction that that's that's some great stuff right there. Yeah, and that's what happens when you leave. You allow players to make decisions. They can they can take the game in places you couldn't imagine. Mm -hmm. And that's what's great about that session is I, that was a, a scenario I never would have been able to dream up <laughs> if if we hadn't invented this chicken religion. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, when we play the game, we play with all different kinds of people. Um, some of them we get along with great. Some of them we just don't click with. And some of them are just downright ill-behaved. Um, really just make it a bad time for everyone. So if you've got a story about that guy at the table that you're comfortable with telling on the show, uh, I would love to hear it. Well, that's what that guy is. Yes. I don't really remember anybody like like that. Like if 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 you don't behave at my table, I just won't invite you back. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just I will avoid confrontation. Um, there are just some there are some people that I figured out. You know, when you're playing role playing games early in your um, in your in your career, you're kind of playing with the kids in the neighborhood or whatever. You mm -hmm. know, and then and then you branch out. And, and sort of you have this group of friends that kind of do everything together, at least that's how, how it was for me. And then you reach the conclusion that some just don't like role-playing games. Hmm. So those are the ones you just, at some point, you have to cut them loose. Yep. You know, so I don't, I don't really have anybody like where they were such a pain in the butt. There must be, but I can't really remember. You know, maybe in my youth, but I can't really recall. Gotcha. 
And then, uh, last of these introductory questions. Uh, this has been one that has flummoxed a lot of people. And I'll tell you, the answer can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. Uh, but, Professor Dungeon Master, if you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Probably Deathbringer, my mascot. Because people are asking for it, I think it would make a cool t-shirt. And I'm going to be working on that this summer. We've got to get a Deathbringer t-shirt going. Which is the name of my house rules as well. So that's what I would put on the t-shirt. Deathbringer? Nice. Deathbringer is coming. T-shirt's coming. Absolutely. Now, I don't know... I, I know Seth, so I think he would find this funny, but if Deathbringer had, like, skulls that looked like uh, his three NPCs, Dweebles, Mike, and... Uh, I can't remember the other one. Because I remember... The, the first video of yours I watched, I just remember Deathbringer saying that Seth Skorkowski pays his NPCs better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Deathbringer frequently insults insults me and compares me to other YouTubers less favorably. Mm -hmm. But I love Seth's channel. He's, oh, he's yeah. great. And those the skits he does are terrific. Mm -hmm. He's awesome. Yeah, those... <laughs> I tried to ask him if those characters were, were based on anyone specific, to which he said they're amalgamations of different people at different times, even yeah. though one of them somewhat resembles someone that he played with in real life, but he insists it's not that person. Yeah. You don't want to insult anybody accidentally. It's true. But they, but they definitely, he nails it in terms of every everybody has played with a person like those. Yeah. You know? He's very, in, very intuitive. Did a great job. Mm -hmm. So, into the the main body of questions here, you you mentioned in your history of you know getting into the hobby, you started when you were ten years old, and it seems like everyone from kind of the early days, uh, whether it's you know white box, first edition, even second edition. It seems like in those days, people got into the game when they were 10, 11, 12 years old. These days, I don't see so much of that. Like, I myself didn't get into D&D &D until college. Uh, why do you think kids aren't picking up these books anymore? You know, I can't say they're not, because I don't know what Wizards of the Coast, they must be selling tons of books to young people i imagine i really don't know I, I i can't speak because my my experience is just so just uniquely me mm -hmm. i think i was very young to pick up those books there was definitely a push when i i i'm not the white box generation i'm really the red box generation yep magenta and, and red box generation and the big push was it went into toys r us and they also started advertising in comic books. So you'd open a Marvel comic or a DC comic, and, and you would see comic book ads for Dungeons Dragons. That's how I got into it. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like legendary. But it was mostly older people. I mean, it really was a college thing until my generation. Hmm. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that leads into the next question here. In those days where a lot of kids were picking up the books, uh, like you said, kind of that Redbox era, 
and uh, you know, with it being in Toys R Us, uh, the game at that point was very dense as far as the writing of the rules to the point where I mean, like you mentioned with your friends, going, I'm not going to read this. Um, and a lot of kids just kind of worked through it. In in my opinion, based on the way 5e is written, it's kind of the perfect system to introduce a kid to role-playing, because it's not that hard to explain. Uh, w- what are your thoughts on this? Do, do you think 5e is a game that's easy to understand for uh, for younger people and, and easy for them to, to pick up and learn? Well, I think 5e is the best written version of the game in terms of its clarity hmm. and the simplicity. If, in terms of the basic set, yes. If you look at the player's handbook, I still think it's it's got a high level of vocabulary. You know, um, I don't know. I mean, I think in terms of the basic set, I think it's it's really well well designed. I love the basic box set, you know, with just the lean rules and only five character classes or whatever it has. Um, but I don't know. I was looking at my Dungeon Master's Guide tonight to about social encounters because I'm working on a video now about social encounters. And it's like, it's pretty small print. You know, it's definitely, I think it's compartmentalized though. It's, it's very much like it's, it's an engine with a car built on top of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, and the engine is simple to understand, but there's a lot of stuff. Like there's a lot of stuff to, that you can add on to it with all the supplemental books, optional rules, Tasha's cauldron and stuff like that. I don't know if it's that easy. I, 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 I can tell you, I play with young people, you know, that are you know, 12, 13, 14, 16, and they seem to be getting into it, you know. Um, might be a marketing thing that gets them into it. They might be doing a good job of marketing the game. I really can't say. I really can't say because I'm not in that zone. And I have, I have children, but, like, my son is a dungeon master, but he was dungeon mastering when he was five or six. Mm-hmm. You know, so he was raised, you know, like, he was forged at Gen Con. Like, I was, <laughs> I, was I had him in a pouch, you know, as a baby, he's like looking around just, you know, like, like the first things he did was grab dice and roll them. So, but I, I think that it's a, it's a simple, very, it's an elegant system. It's an elegant system, but you know, the books are, I don't think are simple. They're kind of complex. It's a lot of stuff to read for a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Now you, you mentioned uh, that, you know, white box very early on, uh, you know, D and D was largely started by and run for college kids. Uh, you know, if you watch secrets of Blackmore, uh, kind of the, the early DNA of role playing comes out of college kids playing, uh, war games. Um, do, do you think RPGs have, strayed from those roots a little too much uh do you think they're still kind of very much there what's your take on where rpgs in general or or dnd specifically are now versus kind of where they were then and then as a 
kind of a second part to that question, do you think it's uh, better for kind of where it's ended up at this point? So, well, I wasn't in college in the 70s, but I, from what I'm given to understand about history and reading, playing the world, playing at the world and, and so on, and, and John Eric Holmes, who wrote the first mass-produced version, The Blue Box, and he also wrote a book about playing Dungeons & Dragons. I think that what was happening at college campuses at the time in the 60s and 70s, a lot of Lord of the Rings and gaming, and it just, Dungeons & Dragons combined these two, and that made an explosion. Like, that was just like plutonium. It was like an atomic explosion. And it was just fertile ground. I mean, like these were students that were reading sci-fi and fantasy novels and, and they're, yeah, they're reading their Tolkien. And then all of a sudden they have this engine that they can use to express their ideas and sort of make their own stories. Hmm. I think that's what happened. And I think that it probably is still widely played on college campuses, hmm. you know, so that kind of continues. I think that most people who play role-playing games, it seems to me, you get a lot of role-playing done when you're a teenager and when you're in college. And then a lot of people leave the hobby and come back. You know, as you get, as you move out of it, as you graduate, you have to, you're worried about a career, married, you know, marriage, children. And then after a while you come to your senses and you realize, no, role-playing games is what it was all about. Hmm. You know, so... I think it's probably all people are young people in college. They're probably still playing the game and they're on that same trajectory. They're st they're on that same path. <laughs> yeah. I mean that, that makes sense kind of based on my story. Cause I mean, like I said, I started in college playing with other college students and uh, the, the thing about being a teenager and being in college, uh, you don't really have anywhere to go. Everyone's kind of there for, at least a few years, so your group's not going to fly apart, and most everyone has free time. Mm-hmm, yeah. So unless someone moves away or uh, transfers to another school, uh, you guys are at least guaranteed four years together. I think we've answered the question. That's yeah. that's the fertile ground. Mm -hmm. You have time. You have time to play every week or more. Yep. And that leads to... The more you play these games, the better you get at them, the more characters you design, the more you understand how to how to do stories and campaigns and live out your your fantasies, these stories that you imagine. Absolutely. Now you you just mentioned Lord of the Rings, and in previous videos you've mentioned uh, you know, Conan and uh Fofford and the Grey Mouse or other kind of seminal fantasy works that really inspired what we now know as role-playing games and D&D specifically. Um, and when I read those books, those stories, there are a lot of elements that appear to be essential to that storytelling that a lot of players miss in RPGs. And these are elements that, you know, having read the older uh, role-playing books were very much present early on, but seem to have disappeared from a lot of games. Are, are there any aspects of this lineage of uh, of literature 
that that you see as missing from a lot of RPGs, or or do you think all the essential elements are present in in most games? I think that it was always Dungeons and Dragons was always a a Frankenstein's monster of not just Lord of the Rings and pulp stuff, but Hammer horror films are in there. Hmm. Greek mythology, Arthurian legend, Beowulf. It, it really is just like thrown in there with a blender. And even myself, I wasn't that familiar with those stories growing up. I couldn't get my hands on on Farford and the Grey Mauser stories. They were not so much in print in the 80s. They came back in the 90s. Hmm. I was familiar with a lot of stories like Conan, I was more familiar with the magazine Savage Sword of Conan, mm-hmm. Marvel. Yeah, they had the Conan the Barbarian comic book and they had the, the more adult Savage Sword. It didn't have the comics code yep. authority. So it had, you know, more nudity and guys mm-hmm. getting impaled and getting their heads chopped off. That's what I like to read. So I was familiar with Conan more through comic books before I ever read those books. Of course, mm-hmm. it was the movie which made me want to read those books. But uh, Favre and the Grey Mauser, I didn't read till later. I couldn't get my hands on those stories. And when I read them now, of course, there's so much like the Thieves Guild. Mm-hmm. And that's where it comes from. And I think as we move away from it, yeah, people forget what these, it moves away from a literary tradition. Like the people that invented Dungeons Dragons, like the Dave Arnesons and Gary Gygax, these were people who were really, really well read. They're, their culture, their background was Greek mythology that they had read and Arthurian legends that they had read and the pulp stuff. And I think now it's sort of been assumed kind of into the matrix and people haven't, who were playing Dungeons and Dragons, not all of them have read that stuff. (laughs) And cleric, it's really interesting to think that cleric there was no such thing as a cleric before the early 1970s when Dave Arneson invented it. Didn't exist before that. There is no archetype in world literature of a cleric. Doesn't exist. And now everybody kind of knows what a cleric is. Like, even if you never play Dungeons Dragons, oh, a cleric, they heal you know, people in whatever video game you're playing. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of been incorporated into the Matrix, and now we've got a lineage of video games and a lot of superhero movies and and that's people's point of reference. And I think that people should go back and read certain Farvard and the Grey Mauser stories because they're, they're so fun and hilarious. And But I don't think it's really necessary to play the game. Hopefully it'll be a gateway that people could get, you know, will find that literature. But so much of it is based, I think, now on, on video games and previous editions of the game. You know, they haven't read that stuff. And... That's my perception. I could be wrong. I don't know. Yeah, the the two things that I see as uh, essential to sword and sorcery, dark fantasy, that whole uh, genre that I like to take a lot of inspiration from, uh, the the two big things that are missing in a lot of D&D games from that are one, the danger and scarcity of magic. And two, uh, the vulnerability of the heroes, which is, I know a big thing for you. And that, that kind of leads me to ask, um, 
so many people approach D&D as a power fantasy. And my, my question for you is, do, do you think kind of the challenge of low hit points, uh, it's easy to death, you know, sorry, easy to die. Death is just around the corner. Do you think that undercuts the power fantasy or in some way does it enhance a power fantasy? What are your thoughts on that? I think that the power fantasy thing comes from characters that don't die. And I think the game is designed that way with its many death saving throws with the spell spare the dying. It's very difficult to die in a game of 5e. I mean, there are going to be people that say, oh, no, it's easy if you have the dungeon master and they know what they're doing and, and so on and so forth. It's not like it's not like the first edition of the game where you had two or three hit points and one hit you were dead. Like you didn't get a second shot. Mm-hmm. You, had, you didn't have a cleric who could heal you at all because they didn't have healing spells at first level. So I think you really, you really said it very precisely. I, I really love what you said. The vulnerability and, and the vulnerability of the hero and the scarcity of magic. Those are things that, yeah, they are missing. You have to go and either seek another game system like a Lamentations of the Flame Princess, or you have to modify your game system. You can get that feeling, of course. Yeah. You can get that. You could get that feeling. It doesn't take much work, but there's definitely people like the power fantasy aspect of it. I think that the big problem with I think D and D back in back in the eighties is people started getting these really powerful characters. This is my experience. And speaking from designers, it was it, it was pretty universal because kids would call TSR and, and ask the designers, like, I have a, a, a you know, an 83rd level you know, fighter and you just <laughs> you just killed Odin. Is, are the clerics going to be mad, you know, at me? Because and can they still cast spells because their god is dead? You know, that happened back in the 80s. Mm. I think that the rules today are more clear so that the characters can't get that powerful, but they are super powerful. They really remind me of like Marvel superhero characters. Like Captain America, I noticed something about Captain America and I like Captain America and Captain America movies, but I, do, I did notice that Captain America seems to have really no problem with gravity. He can fall from six stories and the guy doesn't even have a limp. Mm-hmm. And so we would express that as well. You know, he lost 20, 20 hit points, but he still has 80 left. And sort of these games, when you have hit points that high, you know, when you have a character with 100 hit points or 150 hit points, it's a lot like, imagine the hit points are M&Ms. They're on your kitchen table. And it's like, every time you hit, you lose 12 to 20 M&Ms, but you have 150. Like, why would you care? you know you can't lose them all in one shot. So, yeah, it kind of undermines suspense is what it does, but it helps with the power fantasy. I think 5e is deliberately designed that the characters live unless they do something really dumb, but they don't get too powerful. Even though people, most people, according to D&D Beyond, according to statistics, they really don't play the game past 10th level. Mm-hmm. Now, Is that good or bad? Depends on the game that you want to play. I think that if uh, you have a game where it's, I don't, I, as a player, I don't want to play a game where I can't die. If you tell me I can't die, I don't want to play the game. 
Mm-hmm. I only want to play the game if there's a chance. I want to know that my decisions made an impact and that I won. That's the only way to win a role-playing game is you come out alive, right? So my feeling is, you know, for me, that undercuts the suspense. So a lot of my channel is about suspense, you know, yep. and if you just want to enact your power fantasy, well, that's not your bag, in which case, you know, do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. My, my feeling is it'll be interesting to see in 10 years how many people who are like enjoy that style of play are they going to come back and have those same fond memories because half my memories are about dying like the reason like frederick underfoot the character i mentioned meant so much to me is he lived you know while while there's a graveyard full of other characters who died so he kind of persevered mm-hmm. so if i hadn't had those characters die that one wouldn't mean so much to me so it'll be interesting to see what happens if uh, players, you know, if their memories are as, you know, I think it's the memory, the nostalgia that makes you want to come back to the game. Mm-hmm. And I think with gaming, with gambling too, if you can't lose, you know, if you always won, it wouldn't be any fun. Yeah. That was a long rambling answer. I don't know if I answered the question. I think you did, and and you mentioned something that I uh, have been thinking about a little bit myself. A lot of people conceive of their characters now as you know superheroes like Captain America, Thor, Superman, and they end up being kind of that level of power. And I think a lot of people forget just how interesting it can be uh, to have a more grounded, lower hit point character because they associate that with being weak. And I kind of want to reframe that a little bit for for anyone who's uh, watching or listening to this. Um, Instead of thinking of your fighter with 10 hit points in like a, a, let's say you're playing Swords and Wizardry, and you you have a a low-level fighter who's got 10 hit points, which is high for a low-level fighter in Swords and Wizardry. But instead of thinking about him as little more than a peasant with a sword, I want you to think about him as someone like Indiana Jones or John McClane, who I feel like are two examples of low-hit-point heroes in fiction. Uh, Especially John McClane, because all throughout the first Die Hard movie, you see him engage and run away when he's about to be overwhelmed, hurt himself, and by the end of the movie, you're basically looking at the guy on his last hit point trying to roll a 20, and he rolls a 20. So do do you think it's helpful for players to kind of reframe in their minds, I'm not a peasant with a sword, I'm someone like Indiana Jones or John McClane, I've got, you know, I'm a regular person, I can do some cool stuff, but, you know, I've got this much fuse before it all goes away. I think that makes it for a more suspenseful game. And then some players, some players have to move to a different system to get that feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, like I moved to Warhammer my players, you know, my friends, we moved to Warhammer. I moved as a player first and then I started game mastering it. But the, the, the tagline on that, it was a, a grim and dark world of a grim world of perilous adventure. Now, I've done reviews of it. I've read every edition of that game. I can tell you that mechanically, it's not any more dangerous than D&D. Basic edition, 
if you just rolled up the character without re-rolling anything and taking your honest, you know, your hit points, you roll a one, you take a one. But it felt different because there's a mind shift. You know, there's a mind shift. This is a different game. This is a different tone. The tone of the game was different. The artwork was different. So it felt grimmer and darker. And it felt more grounded. And you had occupations like a carpenter. My guy is a carpenter. He's a fisherman. You know, these are people that are not heroes to begin with. They're working class people. And they work their way up and become heroes. But you could do that in Dungeons and Dragons. It depends on the game master. Hmm. You know, and so it's up to the game master to do. That's the way I like it. I like it. I like the player characters ideally to crawl out of that dungeon with a couple of hit points, having honestly won and defeating the monster or the opponent. Those are the best games, but there is a, yeah, there, that's the way I prefer to play, mm-hmm. you know, but of course, you know, everyone's each their own. Yeah. Yeah. And it, again, you, you don't do this and I try not to do this. Uh, but just to reiterate to, to anyone, uh, unfamiliar with me, I, I don't want to tell anyone how to run their game. So if you, you know, I know people who love to power game and they, they love to have, you know, super optimized builds and stuff like that. And if that's how you have your fun, uh, great. I've played a lot that way. I'm kind of burnt on it. And that's why I'm exploring, you know, stuff like old school essentials, swords and wizardry. And, and that's why I've been enjoying your videos so much talking about ways to make the game more suspenseful and ways to streamline things, ways to, you know, make combat more fast and more dangerous. So that's, that's my headspace on all of this. Um, I think everybody's got to go through that. Yeah. Most players go through that, you know, where they have those, those really powerful characters. And then you realize something's missing in this. And then, then you want to scale it back. You want to scale it back and get more grounded. Mm-hmm. And, and again, sometimes it takes moving to a different system to get that feel. Mm-hmm. And then you can go back and with Dungeon Dragons, you can just make it uh, like whatever you want. But I think a lot of players, you know, do that. I optimized back in the, you know, in the eighties, I read the rules to try to make my character, you know, be a, when Unearthed Arcana, the first edition came out, I remember we all wanted to be the archer, uh, you know, you could be a bow specialist. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And bow specialist rules were ridiculously imbalanced. You know, the bow specialist could do just was unbelievably powerful. And, so I did the same thing. <laughs> I did the same thing. But then eventually you come around and you start thinking, what are the, in terms of drama, you know, what elements do you need? And one of them is suspense. And hit points are a suspense mechanism, mm-hmm. right? They're a timing mechanism. It's how long you can last. And then how long's the game going to be? And then, it's, but it's also a suspense mechanism. As the hit points drop, the game's sus- suspense gets higher. You know, so if you don't lose hit points, the game will be boring. But you sort of have to go through it. I think that's part of the growth. I'm starting to imagine a video, the the, the stages of role playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is one of them. That is the, the sort of the optimization stage. That's definitely a stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
I, I actually talked about this a few months back with our mutual friend Hankerin Fernell, and the the conclusion that that we came to is really the best way to begin your role playing journey is to pursue both extremes of high powered, high fantasy, high magic, and then low power, low fantasy. Uh, you know, limited hit points, that kind of thing. And once you have the experience of here's how super powerful you can be in role playing, and here's how you know far down in the ditch you can be in in role playing games. Once you have those limits, then you can find in between where uh, kind of your tastes will eventually take you based on your experiences with those types of games. That's a great. That's a great point. He's full of good stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He has a very intuitive understanding of what makes games fun, like no one I've ever met. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, I talked about ICRPG and, and 5e hardcore mode last week, and that's really kind of the, the major takeaway of uh, ICRPG is just, you know, more of what's fun and less of what slows the game down. Exactly. So. Yeah, exactly. Now... Speaking of more of what's fun and less of what slows the game down, you've talked about in previous videos how you don't like fighters taking multiple attacks uh, per round because it slows the game down. And I, I definitely see, uh, you know, the, the game slow as you're figuring out if each attack hits and then damage for them. But in my experience, what really slows the game down is spellcasters trying to pick their spell, litigate the rules to make sure they can do what it is they want to do with that spell and not hurt who they don't want to hurt, hurt who they do want to hurt, and then saving throws, damage. It's an exhausting process. What are your tips for speeding up the spellcaster's turn? Well, I gotta, I gotta say that... You've persuaded me. I agree with you. <laughs> I really, I really thought about that. And uh, spellcasters do take a long time. They do take more time than the fighters do. Here's my tips for spell. Spell. It, it, it depends on the game. The first thing that you could do to speed up the spellcaster is I, I have an episode coming up. I think it's next week on what you can learn from Critical Role. I watched an episode, an entire episode of Critical Role. And I really analyzed it very carefully. And, you know, we talk about the Matt Mercer effect and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I and I came to the conclusion that one of the things that Matt make, makes Matt Mercer so good is he's got these players who are phenomenal. Like, they, they don't question him or argue with him. <laughs> and one of the things I noticed is five out of seven of them are spellcasters but they don't take a long time to make their turn. Like if you look at them, when someone's going, the spellcaster is looking down at their little view screen at the rules. Mm-hmm. So they take the turn quickly. That's the way you got to play a spellcaster. I think a game master's got to have a discussion with the player and say, look, if you're going to be a spellcaster, you got to take your turn quickly. You got to know what you want to take when you're up at bat. You know, we got to do this quickly. Mm-hmm. It's probably some out of game, you know, out of game discussion is probably needed there because it can get, especially if you're summoning something, you're, you're summoning little pixies or fairies that can, they themselves can cast spells. 
Yeah. Right. Now you've got a whole chain of spells going on. Um, I think that the spellcasters have to, they owe it to the group to take their turns quickly. And I think one of the reasons that I think 5e games, not all of them, but some of them are slow, is because everyone's a spellcaster now. You got 13 classes, 11 of them cast spells. And if you have that person slowing things down, it can get uh, it can get slow. And I think it's, you got to just have the discussion with the players. Another thing, you know, to get players casting their spells quickly. I mean, this is this is a serious rules alteration. I've always felt that the spell description should be in the players, uh, not in the players' handbook, should be in the dungeon master's guide. Mm-hmm. The players get a list of spells and a one line description of what it does. Like fireball blows stuff up. And the only way you can find out the parameters of the spell is once you use it. Everything would be trial and error. Or you have to, yep. whoever taught it to you, your master, you know, or you know, your wizard that you're apprenticed to will explain, well, this can blow up a room. So the wizard never really knows exactly what a magic missile or a shield spell can do. They just, they know the basic outline. And that way, it would reduce all the arguments and speed everything up because... Mm-hmm. You never, you know, the game master would just say, "Well, just roll this many dice," and that would that would probably speed it up too. But that's kind of that's kind of like sacrilege. That's kind of heresy. I I actually love that. That is that's fantastic. Uh, the idea of having it, only the dungeon master actually knows the parameters because one, like you said, not every wizard or sor- sorcerers, especially since they in 5e lore are basically born with like the ability to cast spells. They're not super academic about how they're casting spells. Not everyone who can cast a fireball is going to know, Oh, it has this radius. So I have to cast it just so to make sure that I don't hurt my allies. Most of the wizards are just going to be like fireball over there. And, it's interesting if only the GM knows the radius, because then he can say, all right, uh, you're going to roll your 8d6, and that guy, that guy, and then you over there, player, you also have to make a save. And the wizard's just like, oh, crap. That's the yeah, thief. Right, right, right now, <laughs> right now, people are like, that's nuts. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of nutty stuff I think of. Absolutely. But th- no, that's great. You couldn't incorporate it in 5e, unfortunately, because the spell descriptions are already there, unless you took someone's book away. Hmm. That might be interesting. Well, I hope if there's a 6th edition, they put it in the Dungeon Master's Guide where it belongs, and they leave it to be... Hmm. Everyone can be surprised. (laughs) Now, one of the other mechanics that you introduced... uh, well, I don't remember how recently this was, but mass combat. I think it was a few months ago. You talked about mass combat. And the problem I've always had with mass combat mechanics is it turns into, while we're playing D&D, we're also going to play kind of a bastardized version of Warhammer Fantasy. Yep, exactly. Yep, yep, yep. And what I like about your mass combat rules is you basically said whatever goes on outside of what the players are doing is just narrative fluff. So, you know, roll some D twenties, add a D 24, uh, 
any advantage that one side has and then, you know, highest versus highest, that's the outcome of that particular section of the battle. And I also like the survival role mechanic for the uh, the players as well. W- one addition to that that I kind of wanted to run by you, because when I've done mass combat as a player, one of the cool things was, you know, finding out how many kind of minions I slaughtered in a round. So do you think if a player succeeds or succeeds to a certain degree in their survival role, they should be able to roll, like, a D10 or a D12 or something like that to see how many uh, minions they took out in a round. Is that too much, or or do you think that adds something uh, to the experience of role-playing in a battle? I think it's a great idea. Just roll your character's normal damage, and whatever you score, that's how many minions you killed. Yeah. And, And that's... Uh, I'm I'm glad you enjoyed those rules. They were created by a lot of trial and error. A lot I had to run a lot of bad, boring games to reach the conclusion mm-hmm. that what you just said exactly that it, it ends up like playing Warhammer and D and D at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, when I when I created that system, I I did mass battles. I, I had the idea that like, all right, well you control. You know, it's your character, and you can control, like, ten other miniatures. You're the leader of this little unit or squad. And one of the things I discovered is, for most players, they don't give a crap. They do not give, they don't care about the people that they're in charge of. And they only care about their character. Mm-hmm. And when you're playing a war game, like, you're playing a skirmish game, like Kingdom Death or... or, or Malifaux or Warhammer. Yeah, you end up caring about those models. You know, they, they seem, you know, these stories develop and you end up kind of caring about them. It doesn't happen with D&D. It's very strange. And I didn't understand why that was. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I love your rule. I think it's great. Yeah, and I mean, that that kind of speaks to, again, the, the Jeet Kune Do approach of, uh, you know, pulling things you like from certain editions. Uh, as bad a rap as 4th edition tends to get, uh, minions are a cool concept. Minions are great. Minions are terrific. That's a great rule. No doubt. Because you always... Because you you see it in Lord of the Rings, you you definitely see it when you read a Conan story. Player characters, uh, or or protagonists in fantasy stories, often end up killing lots of peons, minions. Uh, again, the the law of conservation of ninjutsu, or the inverse theory of ninjas. Where the more ninjas you have, the less powerful each individual ninjas, each individual ninja is. Yeah, uh, stuff like that is very much present in a lot of uh, the media that we consume that inspires us to play these games. So having a system for, you know, y- your guy goes into the the orc den and kills fifteen orcs by himself. That's something a lot of players want even if they don't want to deal with uh, you know, having 15 individually statted out orcs and your your DM's just like, oh, kill me now. 
minions are a great solution for that. Yep. Now, we we talk a lot about uh, you know old school stuff. We we've talked a little bit about it here. I talk a lot about it on the show, and and you even though you you have kind of the approach of pulling from everything you do tend to get lumped in with kind of the the old school or osr uh group and one thing that i find interesting about people who are kind of adherence to the old school ways you know there's good stuff to be found there uh but there's a lot of clunkiness that a lot of old school fans tend to cling to just because they came up playing that way. Thacko and descending armor class and stuff like that. Thacko, yeah, 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 that's that's the biggest example I can think of. Where do you think the line is between, you know, bringing in what's good about old school gaming and bringing in clunkiness just because it's part and parcel of the good stuff? Like. Where do you think lines can be drawn there? Just like Thacko. <laughs> why? Like, why do, why do, and, you know, the thief skills, the thief skills don't make any sense. Not only is it using percentile dice and D6s mm-hmm. instead of D20s, which doesn't make sense because you can, you can convert everything to a D20 yeah. and roll high. But it also is is different. Like when if you say if you say climb walls, like every thief has in a an old school game has like a ninety seven and ninety eight chance of climbing walls. It's essentially you roll a twenty sided and you fail on a one or a two. Maybe a first level thief, it's a two. Hmm. But if you round it up and then and then it's only failing on a one, that's a static stat. Like you're not you're not assigning a difficulty for the wall. You're saying any wall, whether it's a wall, mountain, if it's sheer, icy, whatever, you have a 98% chance of climbing it. That's totally unlike armor class, which varies. It's a variable difficulty number. I just don't get that. It's so weird. You know, I mean, you know, if it makes you happy, you could play that way. But there are certain things about old school games, like the weird saving throw tables that, I just don't understand. There are also rules like morale and reactions that are fantastic. They're better than anything that was in first edition, you know, which had a weird percentile table. And even now I'm doing a a video. I'm writing a video now on social encounters. It is kind of, I understand that a, a D20 is kind of consistent, you know, if you're making like a charisma check or whatever, but initial reactions the idea that you use a 2d6 and you get that bell curve and most people are just going to be indifferent most creatures it just works better so my feeling is take the stuff that works better and get rid of the other stuff not everything old is bad and not everything old is good mm-hmm. you know take the best stuff and, and and leave the other stuff behind that's my how i see it Again, Jeet Kune Do. Yeah. As much as that martial art as a martial art is not great, that philosophy is is good to carry forward. 
Well, he won a lot of fights doing that. He did. He did. Now, one other thing that you are known for, uh, just kind of in, in YouTube in, in general, is the terrain aspect of your uh, your channel and a lot of the stuff you've created around that. When did terrain kind of enter your game? Was that something present early on, or did that develop over time? How did you first come to start using terrain and miniatures in your games? I started using battle mats probably when I, in the early 90s. And then the technology vastly improved. My next thing was a magnetic board, and you had these plastic dungeon pieces. Then a couple Gen Cons later, I saw a Dwarven Forge, and I just every piece of Dwarven Forge, you know, I got it. Mm -hmm. And then I started making my own terrain too. And because I, what I, I noticed about the Dwarven Forge, especially the older stuff, it's ceramic, it's heavy. You'd set it up over the table and you'd have like a sort of a room that barely had anything in it, but it took up a lot of space on your table. And I started getting into the idea that, well, maybe the terrain should be smaller you know, and that's when I started crafting my own terrain, and I ended up with the ultimate dungeon terrain, which is like the circular disc thing. Hmm. Uh, so it was a gradual process. And I also overcrafted. I was guilty of overcrafting. I have a, a city-based campaign. Most of my adventures are city-based. Hmm. And I got I saw Gen Con, a tremendous city display. Like it, it was unbelievable. And the buildings opened and everything like that. And I got in my head to try to make it. And I spent six months making buildings out of styrofoam. My poor mother, there was styrofoam all over the base, like little flakes of styrofoam. It looked like legend. You know, legend, it's got all the pollen floating everywhere. That's what it was like with styrofoam. I made this thing and with all these buildings that opened and then we played and it was, it was boring. Nobody really wanted to do it. They didn't want to lean over, you know, and open up the building and move their figure into the building. You couldn't see because the walls were too high. And so I was guilty of overcrafting too. I learned the limitations of what crafts can do. Like there isn't, there is something to be said for theater of the mind and something to be said for very versatile terrain. And uh, I learned the hard way. Like everything I learned, I learned by screwing things up and running terrible games. And honestly, the, the fact that UDT and, and the kind of philosophy that comes with it, you know, taking the idea of what a theater set looks like, uh, especially like a theater in the round set versus uh, like a full-on diorama recreation of a city or, or a fantasy world uh, so that people can see what's going on and have, you know, a hint of structure without necessarily the actual structure being there so they know where the walls would be but don't have walls blocking their vision that that really is a stroke of brilliance so i, I do have to applaud you uh for for that um and and it's it's cool to to know that you know udt was developed over time and you know we've seen it on the channel develop um but on the the facebook group that you have for dungeon craft uh, a lot of people are posting the the terrain that they're making uh, in that UDT style. What What's some of the coolest pieces you've seen from your community as far as their takes on UDT? 
I've seen lava, like hot lava UDT, you know, so it looks like magma. Mm -hmm. I've seen one was it 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 had magnets inside and it was in four different pieces and it fit together as a circle. And it was perfectly, you know, four different wedges and they all fit together and that way you can take it with you. You know, you could disassemble it, put it in a backpack or a little, you know, box, throw it in your backpack and bring it with you. Those are some of the coolest ones I've seen. Uh, people make them all the time. If you like looking at UDT, and the amazing thing is they're much better at crafting than me. Like, they're able to take my concept and make something, you know, things that are really amazing out of it. And uh, that's it's a great Facebook group to join if you just want to ogle UDT and get ideas. Hmm. You know? Absolutely. Now, someone like myself, I'm, I'm super interested in making my own UDT and, and kind of beginning the terrain journey. In fact, I've got my starter terrain crate from Mantic just over my shoulder here. Mm -hmm. um, I've never done foam cutting, and I'm sure there's a lot of members of my audience who also have not kind of gotten into that world of crafting. How do you recommend people start, and where do you recommend people start as far as uh, just kind of building their first things out of foam? Well, the first place you start is Home Depot, and you can get it either an inch thick. They make, it's called, it's called Project Board. Um, it comes in a four-by-four four square. It's an inch thick. Or you could buy the giant sheet of half-inch thick the half-inch thick variety. Then you get yourself one of these. This is all you need. It's utility knife. Right? You have to cut it out with a utility knife and use a pen to draw stuff on there. That's all you need. <laughs> That's all you need. I have a hot wire cutter. It's useful. You know, if you're making, if you got a YouTube channel and you're making stuff all the time, it's invaluable. But do you need one? No. You know, you just need a utility knife. So that's where I would start. I would start with a utility knife and a pen, a good gel roller to carve out your your patterns on. That's all you need. Gotcha. Cool. I when I saw your UD when I saw the first UDT video, I, I thought immediately I need to be trying this because I mean like we have a lazy Susan already up there on our on our table, so just you know, sticking a piece of UDT on top of that, I, I wouldn't even have to go the step of making the turntable because we already have one. It's it, it really is a perfect uh, solution for having a versatile piece that can be used in multiple different ways. And so I, I love I, I, I love that particular innovation, and, and I have to applaud you for that because it's it's fantastic. Thanks. When I when I, when I shuffle off this mortal coil, that will be my legacy. I've already told my children. It's cool to go to conventions and see it, and see it spinning around. <laughs> you know, it is neat. It is neat that uh, the idea just struck me one day, <laughs> and I was lucky enough to make that. Yeah. Now. This may this might be kind of an odd place to go as we're uh, we're wrapping up here, but you know obviously at some point you 
made the decision to to put on the the jacket and the vest and uh, sit in front of a camera and start talking about role playing games, what inspired uh, kind of the the birth of Dungeon Craft and and uh, the creation of Professor Dungeon Master? Where, where did that uh, first hit you? There was there was two things. It was first my friend Kerry. She's a colleague of mine. And I had bought her sons the basic set, and they played the heck out of it. And they had questions. They always had questions about Dungeons and Dragons, which I would answer. And she said, "Boy, you know a lot about Dungeons and Dragons. You should have a YouTube channel." And then I said, well, "I don't know anything about YouTube." And she says, "Well, you've seen you know, YouTube channel channels about Dungeons and Dragons." I said, "I guess a couple of them." She said, "You should have one." I said, "But I don't know anything about cameras or filming or being on YouTube." She says, no, no, it's easy. You just use your iPhone. And I went, oh, it's easy. And because I didn't know any better, I, um, she assigned me some work. She assigned me some homework. She says, at least go over the, you know, over the weekend and watch a YouTube channel. Watch as much D&D channels as you can. And come back and tell me if you can't do that. And I watched a few of them. You know, and I, and I came back. I remember watching uh, Drunkens and Dragons, among other things. And then I said to her, she said, what did you find out? I said, well, there's one guy talking about Dungeons & Dragons and he's drunk. You know, I, I should be able to talk about it. I'm, I'm sober, you know, like, and I, I could do it. And then so not realizing that Hanker Infernal is more eloquent when he's inebriated than I am when I'm, I'm sober. It takes me many takes. He's great at extemporaneously going for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I really need a script. Uh, but I plunged headlong into it, and it it was, I didn't know what I was doing. And and she told me again, you know, oh, it's easy, you just use an iPhone. And then within one day, I remember filming the intro, the old intro, which was way too long, it was like 17 seconds. Um, my iPhone stopped working, and I took it to the Apple store. I said, this this won't work anymore. I'm trying to do, be a YouTuber. It won't work. And they said, you can't be a YouTuber with that. You got no more memory. You need a camera. And I said, oh, so I went out and bought a video camera. Then so I started with the camera, and then I had to import it onto my MacBook, and, and the MacBook started slowing. So I go and bring it to the a Apple store. I said, this is, this is slowing. I, I'm trying to be a YouTuber. And they said, of course it's slowing. Video takes up a lot of memory. You need an external hard drive. And I said, oh. And I got an external hard drive, and that led to another MacBook. And then because that that crashed and then I, I couldn't recover the data and I had to film all the videos again. And pretty soon I was five or six grand into it and I, I just couldn't get out. Like, and I had to persevere <laughs> because I had sunk all that money in. At least I wanted to get my money back, you know? So uh, it was just completely out of ignorance. And Carrie is just one of those people that's so charismatic. She made me believe in myself. You know, and so and, and then I, I did it. The other thing that made me get started in it is my wife really wanted to go and take a vacation somewhere other than Gen Con, which <laughs> I don't understand. But apparently other people want to go to like Disney World or whatnot. She's like said, like, can't we take a vacation somewhere else? And we have limited funds because I'm an educator. And and I started thinking, well, if I had this YouTube channel and it made money. Let's assume it makes enough to go to Gen Con. Just pay for it. Then, then can I go every year? She said, yes. So 
I started to be doubling my effort. So that was the other incentive, to just get enough money to go to Gen Con. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing the Dice Tower at Gen Con. I remember seeing, seeing and they had um, like a giant pretzel jar from like Costco. You know how, it's like a barrel. It's like a plastic barrel. Yep. And it was people just shoving $20 bills in there, including me, because I love Dice Tower. So, and I, and I was like, there was a jar of cash. And I was like, well, that's got to be enough. I mean, to, to, you know, they're in Florida or whatever. They, this has got to be pretty lucrative if you got a YouTube channel. You know, so that was my incentive to get enough money to go to Gen Con so that I would never have to not go to Gen Con. And ironically, by the time I made any money, there is no Gen Con. <laughs> it's like the Twilight Zone with that guy that stepped on his glasses. You know, he liked to read all the time. And then the whole world ended and he finally had enough time to read the books, but he stepped on his glasses. It's like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so one day I'll get back there. But if it weren't for if it weren't for my wife and, you know, and uh, and, and Kerry, yeah, there would there would be no. There would be no dungeon craft. I have no skills, no technical skills, no editing school skills, no no audio. No, I am a complete technophobe. I only recently got bank cards. You know, so for me to do it is, you know, it, it amazes my friends because I can't turn on a television. I literally need my kids' help to turn on the TV. You know, so that's the most surprising thing that uh, like that any of my friends or my family would say about me is that I can't believe this guy has a YouTube channel. He doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I will tell you from experience that, uh, you know, I, I nearly bricked a laptop from doing podcasts. Uh, so I, I have a whole one terabyte uh, HDD dedicated just to storing videos now. Yep, so. Yep. That that is uh, dip. for anyone out there aspiring to make any kind of content, external hard drive, uh, a second hard drive, something to put the audio files and the video on. Um, definitely, uh, you know that's that's worth the investment. That and a quality camera and and a microphone are, are worth the investment. Yep, I got to thank my patrons because they've. They've upped the quality. You know, they got me my new computer and my camera and wouldn't have been able to do without them. Absolutely. And and speaking of your patrons and your uh, your community, what what have been some of the good things that you've uh, experienced and noticed as your channel and your community have grown? What what have been kind of the positive experiences of you know building this audience? What's that been like for you? It's really nice to see on the Facebook group parents playing games with their children and building things with their children. That's the most rewarding to me. It's it really is heartwarming to see, you know, children making ultimate dungeon terrain with their dads and moms and and uh, just having fun with games. You know, games to me, it's always been the happiest thing that I can imagine. You know, like I. I when I go to sleep and I want to have good dreams, I imagine I'm at Gen Con and I smell the the new carpet smell, you know, and I'm playing games all night like that's and to to pass that on to see families enjoying it. That's really very rewarding to me. Rewarding the personal things is 
getting in touch with people like Hank Furnell and, and Seth Skorkowski and playing. I played a game with, with DM Scotty, you know, and I, I wrote uh, a, a module DM Scotty with, Mc, with uh, McDeath. I wrote McDeath with DM Scotty and DMG from DMG Info. And to know these guys that I watched on YouTube and to know them and, and be friends with them, um, I just I just got invited to be on Nerdarchy, you know, and like these are opportunities that never would have happened if I didn't have a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's really it's really cool. So, you know, you, you look at it, people and, you know, you see them because they're the YouTubers you like to watch and then you become friends with them. That's super cool. And it's really neat. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep, and and as we're wrapping up here, we we do have some uh, messages for you here in chat, just to to read out some some people who have uh, contributed to uh, the conversation here a little bit. Uh, first of all, the Murder Hobo Show wants to know which vest of protection you're wearing tonight. I got I got three. This is the uh, this is the plus one vest of protection. Gotcha. All right. And, uh, you know, he, he wants to also congrat or they want to also congratulate you on uh, the success of your YouTube channel. Of course, you know, it's it is a great channel. Uh, I love it. People here love it. And uh, looks like the Murder Hobo Show also uh, made three sets of double sided uh, UDT. And uh, there's uh, was one with uh, the built in magnet. So there we go. Lots of, cool. lots of good craftsmanship there. Um, early on when we were talking about clerics, uh, Bran Tornout, I think is how you say that name, um, brought up this idea of instead of the, the healer being the cleric, uh, having a healer be more of like a general support role along with kind of being uh, similar to what like a marshal or a uh, a warlord from 4th edition would be, where you're also not just healing, but also observing and coordinating the battle and, and giving people uh, strategic advice, which, you know, you could play out as, you know, giving them advantage or, or giving them some kind of bonus depending on... Uh, you know, what system you're using. What are your thoughts on something like that? Would, would that be a cool role uh, to incorporate for a healer instead of just having all of them be clerics? I think that you make whatever you want. If the game master says you can make it or you want to make it for your own game, make it. See how it turns out. Absolutely. And uh, I, of course, have to acknowledge my wife's pun earlier. Uh, we we kind of breezed past this one, so Elfie, I'm sorry about that, but... In our conversation about wizards uh, taking too much, or spellcasters taking too much time uh, for their turns, Elfie says they have to sit and think for a spell. That's a good one. Absolutely. And then last but not least, uh, Dragori Games wants you to check your inbox. I don't know. Uh, I don't know which inbox they want you to check, but apparently they they have a message for you. Either email or Facebook, I'm not sure. Probably Facebook. Yeah, I feel terrible because my inbox, I mean, uh, you got in touch with me, Ryan, mm-hmm. but I'm terrible with with doing that, like with getting, I, I just went into the inbox and I said, someone had a question from October 
and I had to apologize to them. I said, you must think I'm a total jerk for ignoring you this long, but I honestly don't know how to search through an inbox. You know, so I'll look. I'll do my best. Gotcha. And then uh, Murder Hobo Show has one last question for you. Uh, are, are you planning on writing any more adventures? Well, Scotty invited me to, and I'm thinking about it. I have, I this summer I'm going to be working on, I have a game that used to be Eldritch, and now it's Cthulhu Craft. It's probably going to be something else. Uh, it's a simplified version of Call of Cthulhu without, the way you, you make up a character in two minutes. Um, I'm going to be doing that, and it's got some adventures with it, right? Um, so there's that. I... Uh, this, right now we've got Macdeath out, which is my collaboration with Quest Givers, and I'm I'm looking carefully to see how much it sells. Really, <laughs> and that's that's always the thing because I I have to I have to uh, I only have so much time, so I'm always thinking, okay, if I write something and spend a week writing something, you know, how how does that compare to me making say two videos in that time? You know, which would you know so. But I will write something more in the future. You know, um, I just don't know if it's going to be this year. But definitely get Macdeath now. It's awesome. It's complete. It's really, it's a great two and a half to three hours of just battle and mayhem and, and also cool role playing as well. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Professor Dungeon Master, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's it's been great having you on and, and talking a little bit about some of this stuff. Uh, you know, I've definitely been enjoying your videos, and I'm looking forward uh, to the the ones that you've mentioned, uh, especially talking about social encounters, uh, because I have a lot of thoughts on those that I will someday talk about on this show. Um, but we won't delve into that since that's a forthcoming video. Um, so, guys, thank you for uh, for tuning in and participating in the conversation as well. Um, next week, I am finally going to do a timely review because, as those of you who uh, those of you who are uh, you know big into five E know, this Tuesday, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft comes out. I will be getting a copy on Tuesday. We'll be reviewing it next Monday. So finally, I get a timely review of a 5e product out. Uh, hopefully you guys will join me, and uh, you know, hopefully it'll be a uh, positive experience, because uh, I don't like to be super negative on the show. Um, so hopefully Van Richten's guide is good. Uh, I know Banana Chan contributed to it, so it should, at least her part should be good. Uh, I say that so she'll keep coming on the show. <laughs> But no, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll do some painting videos sometime soon. Um, things are a little crazy right now because I'm in between two big trips, but we'll get back to doing that soon. And uh, I just got a product from Planet X Games, so you know that'll be uh, coming up soon as well. But in the meantime, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I am so glad you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard. And I'll see you guys next time.